1: Hello, my name is Michael Johnston, and this is another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Today um, I'll be discussing Urban Play, Make Believe Technology in Space by MIT Press 2021 with, uh, with Ricardo Alvarez-Felix, he is a researcher in the field of urban studies. Thank you for joining me today, Ricardo.
0: Hi, Michael, thank you very much for having us. It's a pleasure to be you know talking with you and exchanging ideas.
1: Excellent. So to begin with, how did you um, how did you get interested in and start exploring this concept of urban play, and uh, you know technology and space as it as it relates to urban play?
0: It's true. So you know, in some way, it goes back a, a long way. I am i I'm a lifelong gamer. When when I was a small kid in the seventies. Uh, my father, he used to love gadgets. He used to bring, you know, very, very early video game consoles home. So I grew up with the medium in my house, you know, games were as common as TV or movies or books or music. So I never had that divide growing up of not having games versus having games. Right. Uh, and I was always a fan and I, and I had the, I've had the luck if you want of, uh, of sort of growing with the medium and seeing firsthand how the medium has evolved in complexity. So when I when I went to MIT for my doctoral studies in, in urban planning, I kept advocating, right? Like, yeah, was, there's there's a lot that we can do with games. There's a lot that we can do with games. There's a lot that we can do with games. Uh, and I kept getting a bit of a pushback, right? It was like the academic community was like, oh yeah, you know, we saw. SimCity in the early 90s, you know, we've been over games and we've been over games. And I kept arguing, no, wait a minute. The industry sort of has evolved and it has evolved a lot. We can, like, there's a lot of learnings there. Uh, and this came to a point where I was actually sort of pushing uh, a dissertation idea of really looking at synthetic environments from video games, and using uh, virtual reality and mixed reality as medium useful for planning, right? So how could we change the dynamics of planning and the conversations and the process and and understand how humans perceive and conceive space? Uh, To make a long story short, uh, you know, some of the members of my committee loved the idea uh, a member of my committee completely you know, didn't like the idea. He right? was like, oh, my God, no, VR is a fad. You know, it's pure hype. You're never going to get anywhere with that. So so there I am as a poor uh, PhD student sort of grasping with, okay, you know, should I push with this uh, and sort of find my way through it, or should I just go and pick another topic for my dissertation? And in the end, the, 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 the pragmatist in me sort of took over, and you know, I went and, I went and you know did another topic for my dissertation, but 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 the passion for the subject you know it sort of kept gnawing at me. And there's a there's a very important class that used to be taught at MIT uh, in urban planning. It was theory of city form, and uh, with the, the great Peter Binnard. And and that was the class that was originally created by Kevin Lynch. So it's it's like an important class on the field. And I took the class and, and, you know, and I was taking it right when I switched topics for my dissertation. So for the final paper on that class, I decided to just, you know, sort of write about it, right? Get it out of my system. So I wrote a paper about how, uh, you know, the video game industry had learned principles of place and spa- spatial design and placemaking or play simulation, if you want. Uh, but how they have evolved on their own and to a point where the I believe that the architecture and planning world could now learn from the video game industry, could now use some of their tools for simulation and design, yada, yada, yada. Uh, to, so that paper, uh, you know, it, 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 people like that paper. And at one point, Fabio, my, my, my co-writer of the book, you know, we were lab members, lab partners at Sensible City Lab, and he was like, you know, I want to read the paper, I want to read the paper, I want to read the paper, right? So I gave it to him, and he was like, I love this paper, it's great. And he was like, how about if I edit the paper, I will, you know, I will help you get it published in a journal, right? And that for me was my first paper in a journal. I was like, hey, I don't have to do anything else, and you'll get it published, go for it, Right. So, so he goes, he works that out and it gets published on a journal called Space and Culture. And uh, we get really good feedback from the paper and now and now Fabio really liked the topic, right? And, and we kept talking and talking and talking about it and discussing it. And I was like, well, you know, I already have a lot of these things that I thought about for my dissertation and, and we kept bouncing ideas back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So at one point because you have to picture this, I was, I was in the thick of writing my dissertation on a completely different topic, right? So at one point it was like, you know, we should propose an edited book to MIT Press, where, you know, we could just, you know, we already have one chapter, we turn your paper into a chapter, uh, and we just write another chapter in the intro and we invite people. So we send MIT, MIT Press a book proposal and immediately they come back to us and say, we're not interested. We're not interested in an edited book. But this is an interesting topic. So why don't you guys write the book? So there I am, uh, you know, a year and a half before I'm supposed to defend, saying, oh my god, I have I have a book proposal from MIT Press, but I need to get my dissertation done, right? So, so I spoke with Fabio, right, uh, because this, this was a, a huge opportunity. And, uh, and we decided to just take a leap and do it. And uh, I have no idea how I didn't go crazy writing the two things at the same time. I've, I most definitely, you know, I could have never done it without Fabio. Uh, and, and the book has actually, it actually morphed from some of the original ideas I had about play and space and virtual simulations uh, and video games and such to a lot of discussions that Fabio and I kept having over the years. So the book in the end, it turned out to be almost kind of kind our of back and forth, if you want, of ideas. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. I loved the process.
1: And how long did it take altogether to, to write? I mean, it
0: sounds like it took a little bit of time, a few years maybe. Uh, so the actual writing, uh, we wrote it in a year. We wrote it in a year. Uh, it's funny. We actually ended up submitting the draft document uh, a month and a half before I ended up submitting the final draft of my dissertation. There was a whole thing of of me going with my advisor, uh, I, you know, because I, I because I, I didn't tell you know my advisors or the members of my committee, right? So only when the book was almost finished did I go with my advisor, and I was like, "Hey, I gotta tell you something." I was like, "What's going on?" Uh, I've been writing a book, right? In the meantime, and you know, it was like, oh my god, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> but MIT Press, I kind of understand why you did. Uh, but yeah, it, it took us a year.
1: And and how and I, since we were talking about your committee and them not being so receptive of this topic, now that you've written the book, have they said much uh, since then about what their what their thoughts are?
0: I mean, uh, to be honest, we've gotten pretty good feedback. We've gotten a pretty good response. I think that there is a, you know, uh, there are questions about what the impact of new media, right? Such, Such as, you know, virtual reality, mixed reality, augmented reality, which in a place like MIT, right, they've been around for a long, long, long time. People have been... Playing with this concept and with these technologies for decades, uh, so so I can understand where that notion of you know people have done that you know to death. I can understand where that comes from. I think that what is interesting and and, and some of the comments that that I, I've received was, you know, I never thought about it from that perspective. Most people tend to focus on the technology. Most people tend to focus on you know here's this new shiny toy and here are all the nifty tricks and things that we can do with it whereas you guys are actually thinking through what that technology as a concept means and 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 and, you know we're sort of trying to look at just a simple fact of yeah look at the technology progression right we are on our way to getting there in fact never in the book do we actually claim that we are there we do claim, like, yeah, there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Things are moving very, very fast. But if it happens, you know, as, as many people have envisioned it to happen, then it is a profound change. Because immersive technologies fundamentally have a non-transferable, unique advantage, whether other types of digital media... Which is they are able to trick our biology, and that is really powerful. So, so a, a big chunk of the exercise is trying to think through. No, wait a minute. There are more fundamental forces at play here, right? What are the interrelationships between play and space? What are the interrelationships between you know deception and self-deception and how we allow how how we allow ourselves to use that? but now from a positive point of view what is what are the jumps of the technological jumps that are meaningful enough as to you know potentially be able to change the game we talk a lot in the in the book about things like single point perspective right like you know, brunelleschi 15th century and how we see something in vr as a potentially as a change that could be as fundamental as that so So those to us are very interesting questions and we've gotten pretty good response out of that.
1: So one of the things that you mentioned is that play can, can result in a transformative act. So how is play, uh, how is play a transformative act? What does it, uh, what is this transformation that has taken place?
0: So, I mean, at its most basic level, right? You, you have play as an activity, where you can freely experiment with no negative consequence right uh, so as an activity you know either individual or social it's it's all about it's all about exploration it's it's all about sort of creating a certain set of rules to bring a certain degree of of coherence if you want uh, and then and then just try to explore the edges of what you can do right and you know you have fun in the process but to us, this notion of, of freedom of exploration was important and we kept digging at it, both, both Fabio and myself, because the, the lab that, the, the, that we're part of, it, a Sensible City Lab at MIT, it, it's, it's one of the foremost labs working in the field of digital technologies in urban environments, right? Uh, the whole field of smart cities and all of that. But when you look at the discussion around smart cities, around the use of digital technologies for urban environments and for placemaking, a lot of the discussion around the world, it's functional in nature, right? That over and over and over, we kept, we kept seeing research projects or cities or companies that they just want solutions to problems. And, and, and to us, that kept being almost, almost a sort of a failure of imagination. Right? We're like, yeah, really? Like, that's all you can come up with. Uh, so what we were thinking was like, no, wait a minute. You are People are encoding function to a technology before they let themselves play with the technology. So so now what we have is, is, is a mix of concepts in saying, wait a minute, what's the interrelationship between, between play as a fundamental activity for exploration, between technology... Right As a set of, 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 of new tools and artifacts capable of expanding that, that and broadening up that, that exploration process and as space, as our subject of analysis, our subject where the action is going to happen. And we kept going back, it, it was sort of a, a big pushback, a rejection against functionalism. And we kept sort of going back and admiring, Uh, You know, the situationist movement in France, you know, the flaneurs where they would just stroll around cities and absorb cities. and, And to us, it was this notion of, you know, I don't care about, I don't care so much about just functional spaces. I care about emotionally resonant spaces. And if we're going to generate emotionally resonant spaces, then design is going to play a big factor an encoding of meaning is going to play a big factor, and play is a fantastic vehicle for exploring both.
1: Uh, because you were in a sensory lab, right? So sen- exactly. senses was an important part in that. Resonation is the uh, senses that is uh, ex- actually experienced and
0: presented through through uh, emoting. Exactly, that that's that's completely right. So so this idea of you know how do we allow ourselves to play, how do we play before we encode that's why we write that technology is that it's most powerful when it's playful when you haven't ascribed neither a meaning nor a purpose to it you're just playing and playing and playing with it and then you're experimenting with all of these possibilities around it and then you're projecting those possibilities in place you know at a personal level and at a social level and now we have an interesting conversation for design because that moves you closer to how do I create something that is meaningful to me, you know, as a space, as an experience. And when we create emotionally resonant spaces, what happens is that we get attached to those places. And uh, if we don't let them die. Over time, we, we encode and we re-encode meaning and activity. Uh, in those spaces, and that's important. We think about, you know, city making. That's where the uh, you know, that, that, that's where the genie the, the 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 spirit of the place where it resides. That cultural backbone.
1: And, and and my research would be a place like a festival, or a play, or in other cities, it might be a playground, right, or locations where people can uh, can act without fear of consequence.
0: Yes. So festivals are a great example. Because festivals are fundamentally a moment in space and time where people allow themselves to operate under a different set of rules, but it is so important, it's so meaningful to their lives that we just keep doing them over and over and over and over because we actually love them, right? And uh, we, we, we write a lot about, about uh, uh, you know, Omo in the book and we write about, you know, the magic circle, uh, and that's basically what it is here's the space where I'm creating my own set of rules right or with my or with my friends I'm creating my own set of rules and we're trying to you know just have fun within those set of rules that are different from the real world in this moment in space and time
1: yeah, like the big talk on that is whether it's liminal or not, right? The space is outside of space, and that argument goes on and on. And on. is it is it a space out of space, or is it or is it actual real time?
0: <laughs> yeah, but 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 what is really interesting when when, when you see it in the planning practice, uh, and, and we kept arguing about this, right? It was that there's a lot of there's a lot of, whenever you do a planning project, there's a lot of workshops and you invite people and you want to hear what they have to say. And a lot of those workshops, they actually bring in elements of play, right? From, you know, people bringing Legos or drawing on maps and people have fun. But one thing that, that you know, it, it, it's really striking is that the moments that we formally encode as play, even if we're discussing something serious, For some reason, people, they don't take it serious because it's play and they don't allow themselves the possibility of saying, you know, maybe actually we had some good ideas here that we can bring to the real world because they can be part of that, I'm going to say the serious process of planning. Uh, And it's it's almost a failure of imagination, right? Of, Of creating such a sharp divide of value between the two states, which is one of the things that we argue against no wait a minute. You do have that liminality. You can totally transition between play states and serious states and your real life and back and forth. There's this whole exploration and reflection that you can get from posing questions from from looking at the world through different perspectives and lenses and hats uh, that you know after you encode after you reflect on them and encode a meaning, you know that you can you can re-inject that to your everyday life. You don't have to leave it there. Uh, so, so in a sense, we're sort of crying out for that in the book. And I do think, as you say, that you know festivals, concerts, celebrations—they uh, play a huge role in people because you know they've to the point where they have allowed the cities or parts of the city. All right to actually be encoded through that for a moment in time. And they play a huge role in, in people's identities. Well, they're extremely heightened, right? It puts people in a heightened state of mind, which allows them
1: to let loose. Uh, I, I mean, bars would be another ex- example of this. Uh, I mean, although there is uh, a, a, uh, a chemical imbalance that is taking place there that allows the person to loosen up. However, it's only for a shortened period of time. I I think because, uh, because a person can only be in that heightened state of play for so long before we get exhausted. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, 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 you know, those, uh, those transitions, right. How long you can move from one state to another state, how frequent you can move from one state to another state. And in our field in urban planning, uh, that becomes really in the, the transitions become really interesting in the way we understand space right uh because through understanding of spaces how we can project and imagine new uses for those spaces uh, or new designs for those spaces we used to uh, fabio and i we used to discuss a lot uh, the the situation in paris this idea of you know the flaneurs you know as persons just walking through paris just to get the feel of the city right the Guide de Broch's Guide Psychogeographique to Paris uh, uh, and how they were mapping the feelings of the city. It's a wonderful idea, really, really, really wonderful idea. It's a shame that in the post-war period, and I can understand why, uh, but the discussion towards cities uh, became functional and, and anything outside of that became... Sort of secondary or, ter- or tertiary, right? In terms of value, because those guys were onto something. And and when you look at places that have actually taken some of those values as their as some of their core design or even being principles, right? Uh, there are really interesting you know case studies. we we, we discuss a few of them in the book. Uh, places that, you know, even in planning circles, sometimes they get heavily criticized. But at the same time, you have you know places like, you know, we talk, we discuss about Dubai, we talk about Orlando, we talk about Las Vegas, right? Uh, where if you were to speak with many planners or architects, they would call them, you know, temples of artificiality. And, and I would dare to question, well, you know, first of all, all cities are artificial, right? Just to begin with. But, but we have to admit that there is something in those places that, first of all, they, 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 they were built in some of the most inhospitable places in the world, in the middle of deserts or swamps. Uh, yet people from all over the world want to go there and visit and look at them. Uh, and they're meaningful to a lot of people uh, because their own narratives about fantasy, about pleasure... Uh, they are very important. The stories uh, are too
1: good to be false, right? I, I they're think too of... good to
0: be false. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. absolutely. But but at the same time, uh, it, it, they resonate with people deeply.
1: Yes. Really. It's that relationship between the outer world and the inner self, right? It's the uh, uh, it's taking it all in. It's having an experience, and it's it's the uh, subjective experience that makes these places real.
0: Yes. And through that subjective experience, you see people going to these places, and it's similar to a festival. People are in a continually heightened emotional state while they're just absorbing all of the information overload that they that they just bring through your senses. Uh, but but when you when you speak with a lot of people about these places, they have really strong memories about them. Many of them, they just want to go back over and over and over. And many of them end up staying. It's, it's not random that these three are some of the you know, fastest growing cities in the last 50 years. That should tell us something about, hey, maybe these guys have, you know, they've been working around a certain value space that also has merit in the ways that we think and design cities and spaces. Now, another
1: thing that you mentioned and uh, you and your co-author mentioned in this uh, book, Fabio and uh, uh, yourself, is believe and play are a lot, a lot alike. What is make-believe and, and how is that similar to, to play? So
0: make-believe is when you there, – there, there's a bit of self-deception there, right? And, and um, most of the time when people think about deception, they think about it in negative terms. Right? They think about uh, an asynchronicity of information. I know something that you don't. I'm going to give you a partial message so that you end up believing what I want you to believe because there's trickery involved. right? But the fact of the matter is that we also see positive, uh, a potential positive relation towards self-deception. Sometimes by allowing ourselves to accept something that we know it's not real, okay, uh, and we may believe that that is real, then we simply open ourselves up to possibilities, and we think about it for for you know it's it's obvious uh, when we are when you're in virtual reality. It's very very obvious, right? You know you're not uh, in a physical environment. But still, the technology sort of tricks your biology into believing that you're somewhere else,
1: like Halloween or a masquerade, right?
0: Right. When you're in a masquerade, right, uh, you know that uh, you know that it's not real, but the context and the situation of the masquerade, uh, you know, you make belief into that context, and you want to be coherent with that context, and then you ascribe, by the, by the specific rules of the moment, right. And then you and then you effectively experience that moment in a way in which you would have never done so if you were sort of following your normal everyday life guidelines of behavior right because if, if you were to have it if you were to see a masquerade from that perspective it would most definitely be ridiculous right Oh my god! I'm supposed to have fun, like with that thing on my face, and like all time. Yeah, I'm not but so.
1: accepting sure. it allows for possibilities, right? It
0: opens up possibilities. For possibility. So there's a step there, where where you're you're fundamentally saying, "All oh, the hell with it," right? Hey, these are the rules. I'm just gonna go with it. And if you're consistent with with sort of the new rules, and the new setup that you're allowing yourself to believe in it and, and to believe in the coherence in it and to, to allow yourself to be in it, then, you know, those are fantastic new lenses under which to experience the world. And that broadens up your horizons. So it's So they can be really powerful experiences. And all of that begins with this notion of make-believe. I'm going to allow myself to believe that this is real for a moment. Within this context, even if I know I'm not, the hell with it. It is. And I will take it as granted.
1: And then certain assumptions are made. And I think that there's also uh, some potential for uh, the experiences that are had in the make-believe to be replicated in similar situations in everyday life, which I think is the importance that you put into into uh, and, and play and make-believe being similar, but not the same.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and it's interesting because actually we do see it. In a lot of places, uh, for example, architecturally, right? You go to Amsterdam, and uh, people go to Disney, right? And they see the castle, and the castles are actually much smaller than they look. But a lot of the building they use forced perspective, right? So you're looking at them from below, and then they look huge because they're just forced the the, the perspective. But the truth is, that are cities that do it. If you go to Amsterdam, there's a lot of there's a lot of houses around the canals. That they actually look taller than they are. And the way that they did it, you know, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, is that they kept making the windows at each floor slightly smaller. Okay. So you look, at, and, and then it's, it's a three story building, but it actually has four rows of windows. And it gives you the perspective that it has four stories, right? Uh, and, and, and it becomes a unique architectural style. That it you know, highly defines the look of the city. That's right? funny that you
1: mentioned Amsterdam because I live in uh, Pella, Iowa, and it's a uh, it's a Dutch Dutch community where uh, we have a canal that and uh, um, and and we require all the the new build buildings in the downtown area within the uh, well within the city to be built with a Dutch front. So oh, it's, okay. it's just interesting how they've redesigned uh, the Netherlands and in our community.
0: Do you guys have forced perspective on your buildings? I'll have to look at that the next time to see if there. I mean, I can see
1: it in pictures where the, these buildings look really big and, and the cow, uh, the canal even looks larger in pictures than what it really is, but it, it could be camera. It could be forced perspective.
0: I'll have to look at it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, forced perspective is one of those things that once you've detected it in a place, you cannot stop seeing it. Okay. To, to a certain degree, it sort of spoils uh, you're sort of, you're sort of peeking behind the curtain and seeing the trickery a little bit. Uh, but yeah I remember the, the, the first time they told me about it in Amsterdam I was like, ah, oh, this is very clever uh, and now I cannot stop seeing it every time I go like hmm, oh yeah that, that, yeah that's smaller. oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah but, but you know you, you're absolutely right. I think there's a value and, and some people do have trouble. And in sort of, you know, once they've experienced something in their play states, right, that they really like and they've encoded value, some people don't have a problem saying, "Hmm, you know, I kind of like this for every day. Why shouldn't I? Why can't I? And I transpose it to my everyday life. But some people do have that trouble of saying, no, this belongs solely in the play space, in the play moment. Uh, And I don't allow it myself to see it in the real world uh, I think that's part of the challenge
1: yeah it's an ongoing negotiation right in everyday life uh, uh, I teach a course called sex and gender and we talk about that in in terms of dress and, and regal and and how people uh, how people and some t- uh, in certain occasions might try to defy uh, defy the the norms uh, that the different spaces have for what a person should be wearing. And and but across time, you wouldn't see things like jewelry being worn by different people, if not for, if, if not for these slowly uh, modified
0: behaviors, based on small groups, defying the defying the norms. Yeah, it's 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 actually it's actually interesting because when people talk about the the way people dress, uh, they ascribe values to very specific and rigid forms of dressing. And then you're thinking about it from a historical perspective, and you're like, no, they're not permanent. We've changed the way we have dressed so many times in history that it makes no sense. They're 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 just a set of arbitrary rules. Okay, they're completely artificial.
1: Like high heels used to be worn by men, and and exactly. now are worn by women.
0: Exactly. Right. So yeah, I, I think I think I think it's a similar process. It's a process of people just saying, yeah, I can do this.
1: It's an ongoing negotiation. Men quit wearing the high heels. Why? Because they got stuck in the uh, they got stuck in the the streets that changed to brick and uh, you know are pebbles. But and 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 today they still aren't that comfortable. I think to walk in. I'm sure I probably tried to and failed miserably. And 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 women wear them uh, for a variety of reasons. But yeah, and it's interesting and how how high heels have waxed and waned across time, across time and place. And, and that's, uh, and that's another thing to think about. It's not just the actions that are taking place, but also it's taking in, uh, the elements of built environment. That is space or well, part of space. And then also time, what is the importance of time in this relationship?
0: Oh my God. Time is, time is, time is crucial. Uh, I mean, biologically speaking, right? We have, we have an internal rhythm. We respond different to time, you know, at an individual level, but then at the same time, we, we can, you know, w- when we go through our experiences, right? We, we imagine them in specific tranches of time and day and months and weeks, seasons and such. Uh, there's a lot of cultural encoding in time. Festivals are actually a very good example of this, right? So, so it, it sort of becomes another play element. If we think about it, you know, we, we have, we have uh, you know, when, when you're thinking about a place, you have space, but you also have content. And there's a modulation of content that you disperse through time and then you socially encode through time, and 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 that becomes uh, a really important cultural baseline. Uh, so I don't, I personally don't don't see space just working from a spatial design alone. Right. In order for us to encode meaning to a space, we have to encode program in that space, and program is uh, inherently linked to time and to our perception of time
1: the actions that take place in those locations at different times. I remember as a child in my, uh, at home and, and knowing that I normally go to school from eight o'clock to three o'clock. However, I remember at a very young age wanting to play hooky and stay at home because I was curious about what happens in the space at home when I'm not there, but mom's still at home. Uh, I learned to, I learned quite quickly when I played hooky and was sick, that it wasn't so uh, exciting or fun, but I was curious as to what might happen there. Similar things I think might happen with after dark locations, like in Amsterdam, as you talked about, and how the the usage of those spaces change across time.
0: And, And what is interesting is that right now, in no small part because of technologies, we don't have to ascribe a single meaning to space, right, as we did before. Before we used to we used to build for a single purpose, but now you know where we have technology that allows us to interconnect to systems. When we when we have uh, you know architecture that changes and forms and you know it's fully responsive. Uh, there's a lot of different types of things that you can do within the same space. So we intensify the use of space, and we actually intensify the cross meaning that we ascribe to those spaces uh, so it's it's a very interesting moment in time
1: so downtown areas where you might have an empty an empty space but a bar pops up periodically whereas the next night it might be uh, some type of a birthday party or something yes. taking place within the uh, within that empty space
0: yes and 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 mediatizing that space uh, plays a huge role in actually start sort of uh, in creating almost kind of a pop-up moments for different types of activities, uh, for, again, different social groups. Uh, so when we're talking about public space, we're, we're effectively combining and recombining possibilities. Uh, and uh, will in that sense, we live in a very exciting time in the sense that the, the places and spaces that we are creating we or designing, that we're imagining, they don't have to be single purpose.
1: And, and then um, since we want um, to abandoned game for a little while in here uh, in this conversation that we're having focusing mostly on everyday interactions that take place in built environment in the physical re- in physical spaces how does this how is this overlaid into video games uh, or in virtual reality whether it be you know 2d 3d
0: or uh, I think I think the video game world has gone through learning and evolving learning a lot of lessons and evolving profoundly along the way of the you know the history of the industry if you look at very early games right they are fundamentally emulating board games right through an electronic medium but it, as the technology progressed, uh, those board games started to, you know, developers, they wanted to create larger and larger and larger worlds. As, uh, you know, in parallel as the graphics, if you want, they got more, uh, complex. There was this sort of moment where, where the artists input, that the input of the designers in the art department of video game companies, uh, effectively started gaining weight. And you, you, you can see the progress of video games uh, you know, from 2D, two-dimensional representations of games where they clearly were emulating in their world designs and level designs, works from architects, maps, and plans the way they would represent those play spaces. And they were encoding uh, fun uh, feedback loop elements of play over and over and over. But over time, you know, once we've moved into the third dimension, then the worlds, they kept growing in complexity, not only in terms of size and content, but, all, but also systemic interaction, right? The kinds of things that you could do, that you could mix. Uh, they, didn't, they, they, they shifted from being sort of simple uh, play feedback loops, okay, to sandboxes, right? And, and, and in those sandboxes, you move from not just playing, but actually playing and expressing yourself. And then as, you know, as these worlds grew and they moved from being single player to multiplayer to massive multiplayer, then they have become this mix of really big and rich social spaces, Right. Yeah. Well. I mean, we we think about second life. We think about right now of something like Fortnite, right, where you can have anywhere from a Travis Scott concert to to a fashion show onto what began fundamentally as a as a you know multiplayer third person shooting game, right. But uh, it went from
1: being on a controller to to now actually being in that world and moving and motioning and and actually being active in the in the yes.
0: virtual world. So so now when you move to to virtual reality, right, uh, it is no surprise that some of the biggest adopters in virtual reality are gamers because it's a natural jump. G- gamers are already playing in immersive worlds; they're just consuming those immersive worlds. Uh, through a two-dimensional flat screen, so now you move into VR, uh, and now you're inside those worlds. But there's a there's a there's some things that are actually very interesting. And uh, if you think about it from uh, from Marshall McLuhan's, the medium yeah. is the massage, right? It's the medium. It's the medium. medium. The medium is the message. Yeah, the medium is the message. I, I I actually I actually like the other name better. I like the medium is the massage better. Uh, but but. But this idea of yeah, you have to you really have to think about the language of the medium. And, and actually, when you when you look at this last phase of virtual reality, right, uh, post Oculus, I'm going to say from 2012 until today, that there's been a huge explosion in R&D in, in in virtual reality. It's really funny because when the when the first Oculus SDK came out, right, uh, way back in 2012, people myself included, by the way, we were thinking that we were just going to transpose uh, 3D games, actually first-person 3D games, directly import them directly into VR, and we we're just going to play them, right? And uh, they're not that good an experience. Because it turns out that all of our interfaces, uh, all the, the, the pace, uh, the speed, everything is wrong. Everything is designed to be consumed over a screen. So when you look at video games, a very good example of this, there's a, there's a fantastic game called uh, Superhot, where there's a version for PC and consoles, but at the same time, there's a version that is ex- expressly designed for VR. And both of them are actually great. They're really good. And it's worth sort of sitting down and look at the, and look at the key design choices between one another. And one, of, and one of the salient characteristics in VR is that it's actually slower, okay? The pace is different because when you're there, right, the amount of time that it takes for your brain to cognitively sort of absorb the environment, uh, to, to shift, even though it's a highly visual medium, the truth is that when you are in a fully immersive world, You sort of go back to rely uh, on the uh, on Maglouhan's acoustic space, right? And you're more in an acoustic space state, just absorbing through multiple senses rather than just primarily through your visual sense. And that's an interesting phenomenon because because you know you see it over and over. And then the the interfaces, for example, that make sense uh, are diegetic interfaces, right? If you float a map in a VR world, then you're not really getting the medium, right? That's taking you out of the illusion of being there. If you want to look at a map in a in an immersive world, you have to take it out of your pocket and open up and look at the map, right? Just literally look at the map and flap it and turn it and throw it or put it on a table and look at. There needs to be a certain physicality to it. Uh, and what you're seeing right now in virtual reality specifically is that it's a very exciting time for a lot of experimentation regarding the language of the medium we're sort of learning oh this work oh this doesn't work uh, a wonderful example of this is uh, uh, and it has to do with self-deception funny enough uh, it has to do with the, the physicality of objects right you started seeing a lot of experiences in games where you know they would give you a sword. Right, and you have the motion controller, but of course, the sword is virtual, so it doesn't carry any weight. So, you would play the game, and then you would just like flap the sword super fast, right? And the sword in game would move super fast with you, right? So, that kind of breaks away the illusion. But then, some developers they started fake and uh, sort of uh, delivering fake weight to source and and objects Oh, the new yeah. controllers yes where they actually were. no 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 no, no, it's, no. It's, that the funny thing is that it's not even weight on the controllers because the objects are still virtual right you can still move your controller like this but even if you move it very fast the objects in the game okay they have inertia okay so so they so they they've effectively animate the inertia of the weight through physics. So you, could be, so, so you could be taking a sword and you can, you can swing it. And even if you take, even if you move back the controller, the motion that you are seeing in the screen is of a much slower and weightier sword coming back. You. And what is really interesting is that your brain connects the dots, okay? And, and all of a sudden, you actually start feeling weight of the sword, of a virtual sword.
1: So okay. getting rid of the Rumble packs and all of that stuff because yeah. you can put the mind, you can deceive.
0: Yeah, so, by... so so we are at this moment where we are kind of learning in virtual reality not only what works and what doesn't work, but how much we can push forward, okay, the trickery into making our brain believe that we are in different contexts, in different situations, what is allowed and what is not. Uh, there's a great uh, game for this there's actually two games they're called a lone echo lone echo one and lone echo 2 right uh, and they're done by a, a fantastic development studio called ready at dawn and when when lone echo when the first lone echo came out this was 2017 um, locomotion was an unsolved problem in VR now it's a solved problem right <laughs> But, but back then, if you really wanted a larger world and you would like make your character walk in a virtual world in VR, most people would just you know, get sick and throw up, right? It would just make you all dizzy and queasy. So the big problem was that you have a character with legs that was moving, but your legs were not moving and the speed was kind of off and the perspective was kind of off. And your brain knew that it was off and your vestibular system kicked in and would make you dizzy. And one of the fantastic things that these guys did in Lone Echo is that you're playing the game in space, in microgravity. You're actually a robot, okay? So you're a robot in microgravity in space. And in space, you're just floating, right? And you're actually not moving with your legs. You're moving with your hands, so, I grab a surface and I just push myself, and then I float away until I get to the other surface and I just kind of like receive it. And then I, so you move with your hands. So, what these guys did was something that was really smart. They animated using a technology called inverse kinematics uh, the hand and the fingers, right? So, you would have the controllers, and the game would uh, simulate where your real arm would be in relationship to your virtual arm. But if your hand was touching a surface, the fingers of your of your virtual hand would animate to sort of grasp the contours of the virtual surfaces. And your brain made the connection, right? So then you can just grab something in virtual space and just push yourself and you know very efficiently move. and, and, and these guys decoded a way to do a translate a sort of translate that movement to larger worlds without people getting sick because your brain made it believable. Your brain connected the dots. So when we think about play spaces, when we think about uh, when we think about the magic circle, right, again, re-encoding the rules of that space, virtual reality is sort of going through a very specific design, uh, to a very specific moment in its history, when parallel to designing those boundaries of play spaces, we're designing the language of the medium, And it's a fantastic moment for experimentation. Like, really, really fascinating. Uh,
1: As a way to socialize people to, I mean, everyday norms or even to start to uh, resist norms and create change within physical environments.
0: Yes, yes. And and it's really interesting. When you look at some of the social experiences in in VR, we are seeing a lot of that, right? A lot of the uh, sort of what are the social permissions that are allowed in those spaces versus in real life? What are the boundaries? What do we allow ourselves to do in those spaces? What do we allow others to do in those spaces? Um, What are the meaningful shared experiences, right? Uh, There's a lot of talk out there about the metaverse and how we're going to do absolutely everything in the metaverse. I'm not so sure, right? I'm not so sure because I do think that there are, that they do serve a purpose for a particular set of activities that you do Personally and socially, but we're still sort of learning what those are going to be.
1: See, that's different. That's interesting as well because I think about uh, televangelism and things like that, where they feared that television was going to result in churches everywhere in the United States closing down. Uh, however, now we're just looking at different institutions and saying, "Oh no, the internet's going to uh, take over uh, local shopping or take over rural concerts because you know COVID nineteen and we have all these concerts where people are sitting at home. Uh, maybe they'll just supplement their everyday interactions with the metaverse."
0: Yeah, but at the same time, it, it's sort of a technology has a way of going its its own like route, right? Uh, it never pans out as we imagine it originally, which is, which is sort of going back to, you know, this idea that we explore, this statement that we make, that we say, you know, technology is that it's most powerful when it's playful, right? Uh, so allow yourself to explore freely what is it that you can do with it. Uh, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's a lot of fun, actually, uh, when, you, when you take it as that.
1: I can only imagine some of the experiences that you've had in your sensory lab uh, at, um, at, in Boston, when, where you're uh, well, where you're working at, right?
0: I mean, it's uh, the the work at the lab is it, it's super exciting, right? It's um, you have the, the, the sensible city lab. It's basically on on any given Sunday, you have thirty five to forty people from from all many different places in the world and from many very, very different disciplinary backgrounds. At any given time in the lab, you have anywhere from computer scientists, mathematicians, physicists, to urban planners, architects, designers, sociologists, biologists, like all of this. And, and, and it's it's interesting because you need to do that. Our, our subject, the you know, the subject of analysis of the lab are cities, right? And, and you cannot study cities through a single disciplinary lens, so you need all of those conversations to have meaningful projects. Uh, it is a bit challenging because you know if, if you put a if you put a sociologist, a physicist, and an architect in a room, there's there's a slide there's a, a greater than average possibility that you know uh, things are not going to go down well. You know they talk different languages, they have completely different perspectives, but but I think one of the Key successes of the lab has been in its capacity to focalize the research discussion amongst uh, different disciplines for very particular purposes uh, and sort of bridge those gaps, and that's truly where the magic happens. The, of course, the the central question of the lab is is. You know, urban innovation in future cities and the role that technology and in particular digital technologies uh, are having in transforming our cities. So so that throws a very large canvas if you want to play. In a place like MIT, of course, there's a lot of technology that goes through the place. There's a lot of experimentation dealing with technology and dealing with new methods. Uh, But the funny thing is that for as much science that happens in the lab, there's a there's another feedback loop that's heavily design oriented. Okay, so so when you when you talk with people from the lab, right? Uh, I was in the lab for nine years, right? Uh, we used to talk about it, saying, "Yo, yeah, yeah, it's what we do is effectively this f- virtuous feedback loop of design and science, where science is." basically trying to understand what is and design is the function of trying to imagine what can be and they feed into each other so a lot of what uh, a, a lot of what we do a lot of the work that happens in the lab follows that uh, and it's it's a great place so it's a theory, theory and practice, kind of that couple. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, in, a, in a very MIT kind of way. You know, the MIT's motto, uh, Benzemanus, right? It's mind and hand. So you learn by doing. And that's deeply ingrained in the culture of the institute. Uh, you know, you see people running around with prototypes all the time. Uh, so it's a very hands-on place, right? Uh, yes you of course you grounded on theory yes absolutely right uh, you know in the lab it's fundamentally scientific inquiries. but but we actually uh, you know the, the, the lab sort of pushes for a lot of urban demos a lot so a lot of the projects are heavily data oriented there's a, there's a big side of the lab that's that's heavily data centric uh, urban data big data Um, analytics and such and such. And that is about almost it's about uncovering the invisible realities that are in cities as complex systems that now for the first time in history uh, the abundance of data and computational methods are allowing us to decode right, those hidden realities but then you turn to the other side of the lab and it's about, well, yeah, okay, so now we figured this out. What the hell can we do with it? Right. And 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 then the designer, uh, the designer frame of mind sort of just takes over. Uh, so so as a practice of the lab, a lot of the projects get turned into into actual urban demos or urban technologies or systems or exhibits, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Well, thank you for your time today, uh, Ricardo. One dying question that, that our audience members has for you, though, is what what is it that you're working on now? What's your next project? Oh, my God. <coughs>
0: <coughs> Sorry. Ah. What is my next project? It's really funny. Uh, one of the things that has been sort of uh, bouncing around my head lately a lot. It has to do with a way to quantify the value of information that is encoded in space, and that has to do because there is a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk about data in cities, right? Data cities are big are big producers of data. Some of that data is public, some of that data is private. But there is uh, this actually stems from my doctoral dissertation. Okay, so sort of the other topic that I ended up working uh i i looked at i looked at uh, future digitized urban infrastructure system as sources of data right and that's data that you can use for new products new services but the truth is that they fall into conflict with notions of privacy and with notions of data ownership and what you see happening in the world right now, it's a little bit of a wild West. You see you see cities that absolutely don't get it, right? And then you know digital technologies, they're just taking over completely outside their control. You see cities that are buying a lot of technology, but they're looking at this from a solution solutionist perspective, right? They just want solutions to the problem. And a phenomenon that's happening is that you have companies that provide those solutions using digital technologies and gathering data, but then the companies keep the data and they use it for their own product development. So it's almost a way of, of a silent privatization, right, of what is fundamentally data being paid with public money. Uh, then you see cities that are sort of looking at this and they're like realizing and say, okay, you no, know, you know what? That data is public data. And then I'm sort of, putting it out there, you know, through open data programs. And at face value, that sounds good, right? What can be more equitable than just giving data back to the people? But in truth, that doesn't happen because you need a certain degree of technological sophistication, methodological sophistication to extract value from that data. So there's still an asymmetry, right? Uh, And then you have cities that are Sort of further down the line, and what they're thinking about are: wait a minute, can we create data uh, data marketplaces for services to create feedback loops to urban to city finances, so that with that we can, you know, fund public spaces or parks or educational programs or whatnot, right? But if you really, really think about it, at its most fundamental value, uh, the real question stems from what is a specific type of data worth in a specific moment and place, right? And is there a function that we can codify to understand the data value of a place for XYZ activities? So, so that is that is one thing that's been sort of bouncing in my head a lot. The other thing that's, that's been bouncing in my head actually has to do with... Uh, if I take some of the technological transformations happening in cities right now, some of them will have a very deep impact in urban form uh, simply through by, by way of uh, urban economics. So I'll give you an example. Uh, if if uh, the promise of autonomous vehicles becomes true and we have a really high pervasiveness of autonomous vehicles and roads, uh, where you know today, ninety-five percent of the time, a car, ninety-five uh, of percent of the time of a car, is a car parked, not in use. Right. So if we take, if you take at face value the promise of an AV, what you have is a car that will have a much greater rate of utilization, which means that you're going to be able to take a lot of cars away from the road except that right now we have a lot of, uh, of roads and transit systems that are built at scale for the amount of vehicles that we have right now. There's there's over 265 million vehicles in the U.S. alone. So what happens if you take out half of those vehicles? Some researchers, they put a number that says that for each uh, fully utilized AV, we're going to be able to take eight, car, eight, eight cars away you know, from our roads. So, What happens if you cut that, that number by half, right? Then all of a sudden you're faced with the prospect of having an enormous amount of valuable land that was devoted by to cars, you know, through highways and roads that we don't have a use for them anymore. And if you think about places like, for example, San Francisco, where land is stupidly expensive and there is a deep shortage of housing, uh, alongside a uh, deep increase of nimbyism that doesn't allow for uh, for zoning regulations to expand housing, right? Then you're looking at that available tract of road that right now is built, you know, for overcapacity. And you're saying, hey, that's a tasty piece of land. I wonder if I can urbanize that in other ways. So uh, that can mean a very profound change in the form of our cities, simply by reclaiming urban space that was given out to cars and just reclaiming it back for humans. To me, that's a very interesting question. Number one is the quantification of the potential of reclaimable space. And then number two, out of that potential, try to think about what are variations of design uh, through cities that could make them uh, ultimately more human-friendly. So those, those two things, uh, have been popping in my mind. And, uh, now that I am uh, spending more time in Mexico, the other thing that is also popping in my mind and working on is when I was at MIT, I used to, uh, sometimes I used to get angry that a lot of the projects that we did, we used to do them in fancy places like Boston and Amsterdam and Singapore, right? Uh, And I used to look at these wonderful demos and technologies that we would generate, and in the back of my head, being Mexican, I was like, you know, uh, there's actually more places in the world like, you know, San Luis Potosí or Medellín than, you know, Boston or Amsterdam. So if we really want to have a deep impact on the larger share of, of the world's population, there is a function of technological synthesis and design that needs to happen for these realities. So one of the things that, that, that I'm also invested in at the moment is this idea of saying, you know, how do we synthesize the lessons and the technologies and the solutions from places like Amsterdam and Boston and Paris and London and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but to the realities of places like Culiacán, right, or, or Leon or Juarez, et cetera, et cetera, and if we I'm heavily focused on Latin American at the moment, and the way I see it is Latin American is a region that is, is the second is the second largest urbanized region in the world, right? 85% of the population in Latin America is urban population. And the region went through a really rapid pace of urbanization in the post-war period. Uh, and as a consequence, we have substandard cities, right? But then when you look to other regions in the world, you look to South Asia, you look to Africa, right? And they are actually going through very similar paces of urbanization. They're just decades behind, right? So I look at Latin America and fundamentally what I see is the future of Africa, right? We are just, you know, a few decades ahead and there's this sort of voice inside of me that's like saying, okay, damn it, we need, to, we need to learn some lessons and we need to synthesize some solutions here that can be transferable over there uh, before they make so many of the mistakes that we've made in the cities in this region. So yeah, those three things. Uh, and of course, I dabble a lot with uh, VR and AR because that's a passion of mine. Yeah. Uh, well, I look forward to having you on the show after
1: you publish your next book with MIT or whatever press it might be. And thank you again for being part of this show.
0: No, no, I, I thank you. I thank you for inviting me. It's It's been a great conversation. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. Well, this has been another episode of New Books and
1: Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. And have a great day.
0: Bye-bye.